Today, I'm honored to have the chance to speak with Jeff Carrera. Jeff is a highly respected spiritual teacher and author who has dedicated his life to exploring the nature of consciousness and the vast array of spiritual experiences associated with it. Through his work, including over 40 books, Jeff has helped countless individuals on their own spiritual journeys, and his teachings draw from a wide range of traditions and practices, several of which we touch on in this conversation. Additionally, we discuss Jeff's insights and perspectives on spiritual awakening, meditation, and personal transformation, and we begin to explore what is, I get the sense, only a small trace of his own fascinating story. So without further introduction, I give you Jeff Carrera. Okay, I'm here with Jeff Carrera. Is that how you say your name? That's right. Very good. Awesome. And if you don't mind me monologuing for a second, I think it might be helpful to tell you how it came, happened upon your name. I was speaking, as I just was saying off air, to Jeff Kripal at Rice University, uh, who was fast, a fascinating conversation. And I wrote down the quote because it might be complimentary or at least... Uh, it, I, I imagine it would help explain my interest in wanting to speak with you. He said, it's, it's as if we're looking at some something projected onto a screen and everyone's saying, I can explain everything on the screen. And he says, well, of course you can, but there's a projector putting everything on that screen. What can you say or tell me, what can you say to me or tell me about the projector? And the answer is nothing. Um, at some point, I guess I said that reminds me of Plato's Allegory of the Cave. He said it is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. I'm like everybody else, chained to the floor, looking at shadows, but I recognize there's an outside. And at some point, I said, do you think anyone's been dragged out of the cave and has actually started to see the light? And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said, who are those people and what are their emails? <laughs> <laughs> and he, of course, laughed. He said, I actually have their emails. And off air, he encouraged me to, to reach out to you. So... I hope that doesn't put too much pressure on you. I mean, that's uh, it's a, <laughs> it's enormously complimentary. So I'll just I'll just take it for what it is. Wonderful. If you don't mind, I want to get to that introduction at some point. Can you introduce yourself and maybe what you do or what you say you sure. do? Sure. Um, yeah. I generally consider myself to be a meditation teacher and a mystical uh, philosopher. Uh, I write a lot of books. That's one of the things that I do. Uh, I have a vision to uh, share in written form all of the things that have inspired me and all of the perspectives and views and experiences I've had as a result of that inspiration. And I also teach, uh, as I said, meditation and mystical philosophy. Uh, I've been teaching wholeheartedly um, since about 2007, I guess, hmm. uh, and I was teaching in in various contexts before that. Uh, so it's been a long journey. Uh, I lived in a spiritual community for about 20 years. Hmm. Uh, I moved in in 1992, and I was there until 2012. So uh, that was a that was a very intensive incubator. And I started teaching uh, within that context, and then after I left the community was teaching on my own and have continued since then. So uh, I run online programs. I have an online school. Uh, I, as I said, I write, uh, I write books, I write essays, pot, uh, blog posts. 
and I lead retreats in various locations uh, and do longer programs. And I just love it all. Do you know how many books you've written? Because I took a look at your website and I thought I'm just scrolling. <laughs> it is an absurd amount of books. Uh, yeah, it's uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 40. If I had just looked at that list of books and I didn't see you, and I knew, I think from an introductory video that you, I think it was around 39 years old. I think you referenced that number that you started a deeper spiritual pursuit or teaching or, or something. Yeah, probably, you know, 29 is when I moved into community. 39 okay. is probably, yeah, when I started uh, teaching. If I looked at, if I had that number in my mind, 39, and then looked at the number of books you've written, I would have just thought before meeting you that you would be a thousand years old. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I've been blessed with uh, uh, an ability to write quickly. Mm. Uh, so that's been a big help. And it's, it's like Jeffrey Kripal that you mentioned, you know, one of the things that he and I bond on is mm -hmm. that uh, writing is a spiritual path for both of us. Uh, I think we both see it as a spiritual practice, the process of emptying and allowing uh, allowing the inspiration to just flow through you with uh, as freely as possible. At least that's how I that's how my process goes. And I really see it as we he and I once had a wonderful conversation about how books can be like mystery schools themselves, mm. you know, where you can if you have the ability to see what's really, behind the words you can enter into the mystery through the words interesting and i might be able to intuit what you meant but what what exactly do you mean by mystery school so uh my online community i call a mystery school and that's because mm -hmm. i have been fascinated by the ancient mystery schools uh particularly of greece mm -hmm. so the great greek thinkers pythagoras aristotle they all had their schools and they've often been thought of as mystery schools yeah. and they had teachings that they were inviting people to explore mm. uh, and practices. Uh, and, you know, there, there were, there were uh, Egyptian mystery schools in ancient times. There's, there's been uh, Christian mystery schools. So the idea is that there is a mystery, mystical, uh, hidden wisdom that people gather together around in order to uh, facilitate deeper understanding of these invisible realms, you could say. Interesting. So is this anything from Eleusis to the Gnostics? To yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, who's the Hermes Trismegistus? Is that it? And that's absolutely. You know, okay. they they all. There were just lots of various mystery schools, and some of it, of course, is uh, some of it is is certainly factual and historical. There's also, of course, uh, probably myths that develop around sure. you know, these various schools, and uh, but I find it all very fascinating. Yeah, as I, <laughs> I just re-listened to Jeff and I's conversation, and if, I'm going to kick myself if I'm misquoting him, but I think as he said, I believe, I don't believe your beliefs, but I believe belief. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that might speak to the sort of fictionalization of people's accounts, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. Do you, um, how, how much are you writing a day for 40 books? I mean, that's, uh, it's a bit in spurts. It depends. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but when I'm really into it, you know, sometimes a book is just coming strong. So, uh, I, I have been known to write, um, a first draft of about, you know, what turns out to be in the end, 250 pages Mm. in a matter of three or four weeks. Um, yeah, that's impressive. If, if it's really flowing, you know. Sure. And of course, other times it's not flowing with that intensity. But uh, I generally write every day for an hour or two at least. And then, as I said, when when it's really flowing, I might write five, six hours in a day. Hmm. I watched one introductory video of yours on your website, which is a very interesting website, I should note. And the video made me kick myself for having not watched a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. and it was the video where you talk about having a secret as a as a kid being maybe three or four years old and having a secret yes. where you would look into the bathroom mirror i want to get to that in a second and i, I would love for you to recount parts of that I, i'd be fascinated to know what the unscripted version of that is because i imagine that you've revisited that time and time again throughout your life i'm sure um you weren't, I think you mentioned that you weren't either in that video or somewhere in the paragraphs around it. You weren't always a spiritual teacher. At some point you were an engineer. Do I have that correct? That is true. I was an engineer and I was a school teacher. Wow. Okay. Well, great. Uh, I taught a few different things, but I taught for a long time in uh, a a group home for adjudicated Mm -hmm. teens. And I taught for three or four years as a middle school special needs teacher. Hmm. Uh, and I taught uh, freshman algebra and physics more briefly. Wow. And then what kind of engineering did you do? Uh, I worked for an electro optic company. We made uh, lasers, semiconductor laser diodes for uh, computer systems. And how many lives have you lived? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I just, <laughs> just three or four, I think. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Which which was the what were you doing before you became a full time teacher uh, in this sort of spiritual or mystery school sense? Uh, for work, I was school teaching. So okay. I went to college to I studied physics as an undergraduate. I mm-hmm. became an engineer. I liked that for five or six years. The company I was working for started to to at that point do a lot of military contracts, um, mm-hmm. and the the armed services came to show us sort of what we were supporting with all of our technology. And I was slightly horrified that this is what I was doing with my time. So I moved out of engineering Mm. and, you know, I had always loved teaching. So I thought I'd teach high school physics, but one thing led to another and I got a special needs degree and started teaching special needs. Is it too uh, capital R romantic of me to imagine that your interest in physics has some tie in to your interest in, these deeper spiritual truths? Absolutely not. No romantic at all. I, I I wanted to study physics because I was at that point, you know, I had been raised Catholic. Mm. I had rebelled against the church. I had become a staunch atheist materialist. And mm. I was convinced that if I understood physics, I would understand the true workings of the universe. And I got disillusioned when I went far enough in physics to come across uh, string theory, which was really popular at the time. And, you know, sometimes dubbed the theory that basically can't explain anything because it can be changed to explain anything. (laughs) You know, it's, 
it, it's ah. it's just so wild um and i thought wow this feels like people are just making this up uh hmm. which is actually part of the art of physics which i have later come to appreciate but i read thomas kuhn's structures of scientific revolutions and i learned about scientific paradigms and you know how science is not really about finding out the truth it's about filling out a fundamental idea about reality uh until that idea changes and then you throw all that out and start again uh and that kind of really propelled me along on on a path to want to understand myself rather than the outside world interesting you could tell me if i'm going down too narrow of an alley here but that takeaway that you got from that book the title of which i can't remember <clears throat> um and i and i'm obviously i'm remembering in this moment that you have a book called paradigm paradigm shifts or yeah paradigm right. Shifts, mm -hmm. right <clears throat> jeff kripal and i spent a little bit of time talking about what I might go back and re-annotate the sort of science of religion or this, this like dogma of religion or this dogma of science. Um, sorry, the religion of science. <clears throat> the way that I was sort of talking about it with him was that science was really interested in sort of like expanding out what we know really, really slowly. And the way that I understood Jeff was saying, he's like, well, sometimes we experience things that are like way out here and we just haven't gotten there yet. And so people will term this the impossible. And of course, this is a word that he keeps coming back to. Was that your experience? That is that what you were saying? That that they're interested in sort of filling in what they un, an idea, or were you saying that they're actually not interested in expanding at all? Well, this is this is I'm gonna just give you a brief story of how this came about. Sure. I was an engineer and we had a, a piece of machinery called a reactive ion etcher and it wasn't working properly. And this was a really big problem <laughs> costing us, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars every day because it kept mm. depositing copper all over silicon chips where that's really bad because copper is highly conductive and it means everything shorts out. Interesting. And I worked for two or three months doing experiments to figure mm. out what was happening. And every day I'd report on my results. I was a junior engineer. And the senior engineers would then debate and come up with a new theory of what was happening and and send me in to do a different experiment. And we did so, and the theories just got wilder and wilder, you know, mm. about how atoms were breaking down and recombining and forming copper. <clears throat> After two or three months, I was just so fed up, I needed a break. So I spent... Uh, a few days cleaning the machine and I decided to like really do a good job so that I could milk it out. Mm. And I pulled the whole thing apart and deep in the machine, I found a penny that someone had dropped. And that was actually the source of all the copper and that something popped. I was reading structures of scientific revolutions at the time. And, and basically what that book is saying is that normal science is about, is basically people very methodically hunting down evidence to support what we already believe is true mm. and extending what we already believe is true into domains that hasn't reached yet. Mm. And, and that's really valuable and it leads to all kinds of great results. But he talked about how there's also revolutionary science and revolutionary science occurs when either 
our current theory, there's some things happening that we can't possibly explain. And somebody just decides to make up a completely different way of seeing, or someone just has an inspiration, like Einstein, you know, has some wild idea about relativity that has nothing to do with classical mechanics. And he just sticks with it until everybody sees, oh, it's actually true. Hmm. Uh, or it's some kind of a, like, in that case, it's almost a mystical revelation. And, and at that point, that's what, um, I don't know if I remember which physicist it was, uh, who said I think it was Max Planck, but I could be wrong. But he basically said, scientific, new scientific theories are accepted from one generation to the next because the current generation has to die off before sure. the next generation will accept it. And that was a bit of what uh, this book, The Structures of Scientific Revolutions, was about. It was about how we get embedded in unconscious beliefs about the way things are. Those beliefs shape what we see so that everything we see seems to conform to what we already believe. And then we think because we're seeing things that conform to what we believe, that must be proof that it's true. Right. And and there are times when you just burst out of mm. the current paradigm and you realize, wow, we don't really know what's true. We actually really don't know what's true. Do you think that should be the scientific disposition? I'm going to, at some point to make a parallel to like a sort of meditative disposition, right? Yeah. And, and I would say this, a true scientific disposition is that. And, and you know, uh, you know, a, a true scientists understand that all theories are theories. This is why no theories are ever proven in science, right? Mm -hmm. They're always tested over and over again because we just don't know we, we we keep testing there's a difference between and this is probably what you and jeff were talking about there's a difference between science which is this very open-ended ongoing investigation in which nothing is ever seen as a final truth because everything can be overturned hmm. and what's called scientism hmm. which is more like the religion of science which is often the way science is viewed especially in in the more in the view of the general public, which is that science isn't seen as a way of exploring reality ongoingly. It's seen as a collection of facts about reality. And, and that's not what science is. It's not a collection of facts. It's a collection of theories that are the best theories we have so far. How much of that do you think is, a, is the result of people saying, great, I trust you, white lab coat and all, what do I do? Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's a huge, it's like, you know, in the Middle Ages, it was the church. You know, <laughs> in the modern world, it's science. But mm. the reality is we don't all have time to figure out what's true for ourselves. So we do have to trust something. It's just, <clears throat> it can go too far. And we can get complacent. And we can begin to think that somebody actually knows when, in the end, nobody actually knows. Yeah. <clears throat> I will at some point I I want to come back to this question of the scientific disposition and how mm -hmm. it might have analogs to a meditative disposition. But I um I'd like to introduce that by revisiting the story of you in the mirror. Yeah. You said in the video that you realized that you had a secret at some point that you unlearned. Mhm. Mm what was that or that you forgot? What was that 
secret. Okay. Well, let me tell you the story. Sure. So this is me 10 years into living in community on a spiritual retreat mm. at about the age of 39, sitting in meditation. Uh, this was a two month long retreat and this was about halfway through it or something. And, and I was very motivated. Uh, so I was really giving a lot of my energy to the practice. And at some point I was uh, sitting, I was in those, at that time I was sitting with eyes open and suddenly I saw that I was moving to I, like my line of sight was moving upward toward the ceiling. Hmm. And I thought, wow. Oh, you're just, yeah. It was like, wow, I'm like floating up. Yeah. yeah. And then I floated through the roof, hmm. like my line of sight. And I saw, you know, like the rafters and then I was outside and then I kept going and, and to make a long story short, it was this long journey that ended up with me, the size of the entire universe. And I had this feeling that I'm home, that 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 I am the universe, and I've I'm I've returned, and I felt this enormous swelling of just deep comfort and love, uh, and then I shrunk back down until I went back into the room and I was back on my cushion, and you're like no, <laughs> exactly. But when I got back, I thought. I used to do this all the time when I was like three and I suddenly had this vivid memory of how I used to go into the bathroom. And my secret was I could go in the bathroom, lock the door, stare into my own eyes in the mirror hmm. and blow up to be the size of the universe, experience this elation of love and joy and, and homecoming and return to my body. Right. unlock the door and leave flush the toilet yeah <laughs> right and i never told anybody about it but anytime like life felt like it was too much i just go and blow up to the sides of the universe and i remembered after this retreat experience i remembered very vividly the day i couldn't do it anymore hmm. the day that i looked into my eyes and i had forgotten how and and for a while i kept trying to figure out how in different ways yeah and eventually I just forgot that I ever could, mm. but I still had this interest in wanting to see through my mind. I had it all through high school. I had it all through college, but I, I forgot the mm. reason why it, it was just this unconscious curiosity and philosophy and meditation and spiritual things that I always even as a devout materialist atheist, I still had this I, this interest in the paranormal and and the mystical. How much of it, I mean, I'm sure you thought a lot about this, but how much of it do you think had to do with actually looking into your own eyes? I think that was, because I wasn't doing that on the retreat when I was right. 39. So evidently that was, uh, that was something I had discovered. That was the secret, that if I looked into my own eyes, it would happen. Now, I don't think, I don't think that would necessarily work for everyone. And I I think there can be a lot of triggers, you know. So we certain practices can trigger us to let go, you know, to to lose the sense of limitation, to lose the sense of constraint, you know, that we just get so focused. In in my case, it was staring into my own eyes, but you know, I think it could be a lot of things that would allow one to let go in that way. Yeah. I'm so uh, it's such a fascinating story because I imagine as a four-year-old, you have 
so little self-consciousness. Right. And, and I don't know if this is a strange paradox, but then you look into your eyes and you're really just deeply contemplating yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And then suddenly you have this profound experience, right? And it sounds like you've, you had it multiple times as a kid, but then I wonder if you get older, you know, I don't know what age, six, seven, eight, you're like, what does my hair look like? You know, like you're looking in the mirrors and you're seeing different things. You're like, Oh, my, my teacher upset me yesterday. Um, there's that person in class I like, whatever, right? You're thinking about different things. You look in the mirror mm -hmm. and then suddenly 30 plus years later, you're 39 and you're not using a mirror, but you're deeply looking into yourself again and you have that experience again. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, I think I, you know, there was a great book written many years ago called the spiritual life of children. I think um, hmm. I have it somewhere, but I haven't picked it up for years, but it was all about, if you interview young children, often they have experiences that you could only think of as spiritual experiences. They see things, they hear things, you know? Yeah. But yeah, what happens is as we, as we get older, we solidify into a sense mm. of self and we also learn to conform to the agreed upon limits of reality. Uh, and, and we just, I, this is the, the analogy I often use with people. I say, imagine you saw an alien sitting up in a tree, you know, a ways away. And yes. you, you looked at the person next to you, you said, oh my God, you see that alien in the tree? And they looked and they said, I don't see that. Hmm. And they looked at you like, what the hell's wrong with you? And you, right. you go, okay. And then you go to the next person, look at that. And they don't see it. Hmm. You know, how many people would have to say, I don't see it before you'd stop asking? Not many. Right. And how many people would have to say, I don't see it before you'd stop seeing it. Mm. You know, and I think that's what happens to all of us. We just, we get conditioned by consensus reality to only seeing what the current paradigm will allow you to see. Interesting. Why? Because we're all deeply motivated not to be ostracized, not to be, you know, removed from the tribe. You know, it's, hmm. it's a deep, deep drive in us to want to belong. Uh, and uh, yeah. And so it's in the end, we're afraid to stick out too far. What do you do then with histories of shamanic traditions where you have that, that outsider is really valued and maybe we all don't see the alien that they see in the tree, but we really value them. Right. Because, because we, because we live, because in, in, in that culture, there's a paradigm where part of the agreed upon reality is that there are aliens in trees and some people can see them. Mm. And so if someone says, I'm seeing the alien in a tree, you don't look at them and say, oh my God, what's wrong with this person? You go, wow, I, this is a shaman. <laughs> got, mm. This person's got the, he's got the gift or she's got the gift. Um, mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a culture in which the mysteries of the invisible realms and the unknown were accepted as a part of reality where in our current, in the modern, you know, highly materialistic uh, worldview, anything that can't be, uh, you know, proven with a collective sensual evidence is held as suspect and merely subjective, uh, which means not really true. Sure. Interesting.
I'm thinking, and you spoke to a what I interpreted as a cultural Roman Catholic upbringing. That almost feels like it's starting to feign that shamanic paradigm where, hey, there are people who see things differently, but it almost feels a little excusing where it's like yeah the, i don't know if growing up as a cultural catholic i really trusted that the priest really saw things or had connections to things i didn't think you know occasionally i'd stumble into a really wise priest and i would just be struck by their wisdom or their mm -hmm. perspective but i wouldn't think that they were you know sort of on a different frequency yeah and i think that's that that describes my experience you know i wanted to be a priest mm. uh when i was a kid in fact, till about the age of four or five, when I confided in my grandfather that mm. I wanted to be a priest. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. They make a lot of money. And I, I thought, oh, that's not what I want to be a priest. I thought, And I, I just decided, okay, that's not what I want anymore. Um, but, you know, we have to realize that even, even being raised Catholic in the modern world, we are fundamentally secular Catholics, mm. which means, yeah, we can believe but believing in a modern context is different than believing in a traditional or sort of medieval context. Uh, what do you mean by that? It means that um, in, a, in the modern world, you're, you're kind of having to straddle two things, right? You're having to straddle this, the kind of scientific materialist worldview, which is by far the dominant influence over, mm -hmm. over modern life, you know? And, um, and then if you have, uh, if you are a believer, you know, you, you have to sort of tenaciously hold on to that and find a way to make it work in this larger mm -hmm. context. And if you go very far in that direction, you'll end up separating out. You'll, you know, you'll become part of a small, uh, a smaller sect or, or a, a group that's more separated, you know, and, and someone who lived in a spiritual community that was, for all intents and purposes, a cult, uh, yeah. you know, you can see what you have, your worldview uh, is so different than the secular worldview that you need to kind of completely isolate yourself in order to feel comfortable with what it is that you believe. And even in that context, you're constantly having to bump up, I was at least, constantly having to bump up against the spiritual realities that I believed in and that I was experiencing and the more secular scientific materialist background I had in physics that were often at direct odds. And I kind of believed both and somehow had to make it all work for myself. Does that, I mean, how, how does that struggle not persist? Because it's not like, it sounded like you still remember all the physics. Yeah. Well, I guess. You might not remember all the equations. No, I, I definitely don't remember all of it. And I think a lot's changed since I've been studying it. But um, but if I speak for myself, I think, you know, gradually and, and maybe in spurts, uh, I came more and more to the point where my my spiritual life and my spiritual beliefs were so much more important to me mm. and, and in which I had created a life around those beliefs to such a degree that they became increasingly dominant in terms of what was influencing me. And, and I think also 
naturally as you get older, you are more and more willing to stand out, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, I live a very, I live a very, uh, how do I want to say this? Most of the time, the people I interact with are in the same kind of spiritual view that I am. Mm. Uh, so I had much more, it was more challenging for me during the years that I was living in a spiritual community and working in a school system. Uh, sure. You know, because then I was having to navigate much more the secular world and the spiritual world as my my life has been more consumed by my teaching and my writing uh, and the people that have gathered that are interested in that and my, you know, peers who are doing similar things. Uh, I'm less and less at conflict and more and more feel free to live in a belief system that's often directly contradictory to the dominant way of seeing things. Interesting. So you're three or four years old. You realize you have a secret. That secret slowly fades. Um, you realize that you can't access it. And at some point, did you even did you have any interest in returning to that, or it wasn't until you accidentally returned to that at thirty nine that you well, realized that you had that the whole time potentially? I mean, to me, that that experience I had at thirty nine helped me understand my whole life, mm. right? Because uh, from from what I remembered of my life, I always had this weird interest in things like locking myself in my father's car and trying to stop my mind mm -hmm. laying out on the lawn on summer evenings and looking up at the stars until my spine started to shake with, mm -hmm. with this kind of weird feeling of the immensity of the universe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing LSD, uh, in sure. college and, and, you know, I'm being amazed at how my mind, like I, I didn't know what was real because I didn't know how much of my reality was actually just being created with my mind because the whole thing could be altered with a pill. Uh, mm. And then, uh, after you know, then eventually getting interested in meditation and cognitive psychology and and then deeper mystical philosophies. And then at the age of twenty nine, when I was married and I was a school teacher and I owned a white house with a white picket fence and I I banged into this spiritual community and I watched myself leave everything to go move in with a whole group of strangers that I didn't know hmm. on a quest for enlightenment, which never made any sense to my mind. <clears throat> but when I had this experience 10 years after that, I thought, oh, that's why. Hmm. Like somewhere unconsciously, I was deeply haunted hmm. by those early memories. And even though I didn't have a conscious memory of them, they were driving a lot of my behavior and choices and and especially these big moments like leaving my career and my wife and my white house and joining a spiritual community which everybody except me well everybody kind of including me thought was insane to sure. be honest wow i don't know if i'm going to force this but Earlier, we were talking about this sort of scientific, methodical approach to proving what you sort of already know. That seems weirdly 
analogous to your spiritual pursuit where you sort of already knew something in a, in maybe like a Gnostic sense or, you know, like you, you sort of knew that you already had been there as a child, right. To this place. Um, and you, it sounds like you started very methodically trying to get back to that secret or to that, that realization. Absolutely. Largely unconsciously, but mm. definitely. And, um, you know, the, the thing, uh, the thing that I want to say about that at this moment is I'm not a big believer in truth mm. period. Uh, I don't, I don't, I think, I don't know what the truth is, but uh, I think that this event that we call reality is a co-created event, which means I do believe there is something real, you know, and, and that something real is constantly interacting with my, perceptions and my beliefs and my ideas and my choices. And somehow in that mix of my engagement with things and the real things I'm engaged with, whatever they are, what emerges is an experience that I call reality. And, you know, I could look at my spiritual path and I could say, okay, I discovered something that was true and I methodically, you know, made discoveries and and found out how true it was but i don't know if that's what happened you know i think what happened is i discovered a possibility a potential that i had experienced as a child and then i made choices and lived a life that made that possibility more and more available to me hmm. as a person so is that reality well it's my reality you know is it somebody else's reality not necessarily and, you know, I just don't, I'm very, I'm very enamored with the way in which what we experience as real has much more to do with our own choices than we might think. What we experience as real has more to do with our own choices than we might think. Can you give me another example? Besides your whole life story, sorry. <laughs> well, maybe to make that clearer, you know, it's the whole idea of a paradigm, right? So this this got me started hmm. on this track. So, so what? Uh, Thomas Kuhn, he was a professor at Princeton University. He was a, a, a historian of science, hmm. and he said, "Okay, so the story of science. What what we learn is that the story of science is here. We are in a big world, and science." is discovering facts about the about the world. And he said, you know, largely that's what science does. It keeps going, oh, you know, the the force equals mass times acceleration works here and it works over there and it works in the stars and we're expanding where it works and seeing it works everywhere. Hmm. But you know, sometimes every now and again through the hist the so-called history of science, yeah, something happens that's so dramatic right that suddenly everything gets called into question and he he goes through various um examples of that and he said the later history books of science will always talk about how this was an advancement based on the discovery of something that was more true that led to even more truth in science 
But he said, if you actually look at science before the revolution and science after, there's no relationship between those. Hmm. It's like everybody lived in one world and then everybody lived in a different world. Hmm. You know, he, there's a, he has a great quote in his book and it's something like, um, after a paradigm shift, the world doesn't change, but everything is different. Yeah. You know? And, and I started to see, yeah, we as scientists work our way into a reality which allows us or, or demands from us that we keep over months uh, making up wilder and wilder theories about what might be happening in an etcher without anyone ever thinking maybe we should clean it. You know, we were just in a reality that didn't allow for that possibility. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't like I was smarter than anybody else. I was just having to do all these experiments and I was tired of it. So it was really an accident. And I, but I saw in that example, I really, it changed me. I saw how, how we were all in a view of reality that kept spitting out theories to test and it probably would have spit them out indefinitely you know because if you've got really smart people in a room they can create a lot of theories <laughs> and so on the other side then the sort of spiritual and mystical pursuit would almost be similar where you have this methodical approach but not in pursuit of a theory uh i think it's probably also you know, consciously or unconsciously in pursuit of a theory. Mm. Um, I am very enamored. I like that word. So I'm very enamored. I'm in love with mystical philosophy, mystical experience. And what I find is as I study more mystical ideas, as I do more mystical practices, this has always been the case. I gain access to more non-ordinary experiences of reality. And those inform how I live in ways that make that give me the most fascinating life to live. Hmm. So when people say, ask me, you know, why do I teach? Because I'm so compelled to keep writing and teaching. Why do I do this? It's not because I think I know the truth and I want you to know the truth. It's because I'm having a great time being a human being and I want you to have a great time being a human being. And I don't know if you're going to have a great time the way I am. But if you are that kind of person, let's do it together. Hmm. Again, I, I'm really fascinated by this dichotomy between this sort, sort of scientific exploration towards truth and then it sounds like in your experience the only thing you've arrived at is that you that there is no truth right well it's not that there is no truth i actually think there is a truth hmm. what i think is that we'll never know what it is okay you know and and so something's true whatever that means but hmm. you know I'm pretty, I've definitely come to the conclusion I'm never going to know what it is in some way that I can say, hey, this is the truth. Sure. Um, all I, I'm, I'm a kind of a pragmatist in some ways, which is, you know, I know what's working for me in terms of the opening of my experience to mystical realms that I find the most compelling thing about being human. 
You know, the most compelling thing to me about being human is that we can keep exploring beyond the edges of the material universe into these spiritual, mystical, esoteric realms of 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 what is. And that, you know, it's kind of like once I realized that this whole three-dimensional universe that that we live in is itself you know kind of a thin facade that separates us from a whole infinite vastness beyond hmm. i just want to go out there you know that's i want to see what's out there i just yeah. i i i'm not as interested in the confines of 3d life Excuse me if I'm not interpreting this exactly correctly, but your, at least from my perception, your aversion to the word truth insofar as it's not particularly helpful because we will never know what it is. Do you have a similar aversion to, to a word like God? Mm, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, because God is another word that means truth, but in a, in a, so I love the word God for, you know, I love words. Sure. And, uh, I love the word God. I tend to use the word the divine mm -hmm. over God, but I love the word that just means the totality of isness, sure. you know, which is a kind of completely undefinable something. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the, the challenge with truth is that anyone who has a very strong sense that they know the truth runs the risk of a kind of absolutist fanaticism. And that can be in a spiritual context, a scientific context, a political context. But, you know, anytime we know the truth and other people don't know the truth, that gives us license for all kinds of unsavory uh, behaviors, you know, sure. that have not proven to be particularly useful in any context. Right. Cautionary uh, tales abound. <laughs> exactly. The additional challenge in the spiritual domain with a word like God which I said is kind of a, a substitute for truth mm. is you're giving the, the, the goal of mystical traditions is to come into direct contact with the unknowable. And anytime you give a word to the unknowable, even the unknowable, mm. it tends to reify it into a something. Mm. And, and I think you said it earlier, right? About you can't see the projector. Right. Right. So, the awareness, the source of awareness, which, you know, you can take a moment and just become aware of awareness yeah, and just trippy. see that you're just flowing, you know. Mm. But as soon as you give that a name and call it anything, it it your mind is going to tend to create an idea of something around it that's going to, that will ultimately limit your access to it. Because the only way to gain access to the unknowable is to not know. And I'm sorry for the people who are listening, <laughs> because I'm going to use my hands and I'm going to probably overdepend on my hands in a, in a second. But is it constraining when we name it or label it or whatever, call it it even? Because is it constraining to our experience because we think it might be in here where it could be? be out here but when we give it a label we we think it's 
confined to that space? Absolutely. That's that's one way to think about it. And it's absolutely true. The other way to think about it is it's constraining because generally speaking, we're all lazy. Sure. Right. And so what that means is if I know it and I have a label for it, I can put it in a box and go, hey, did that. Now I can move on. You know, but the the whatever God is, whatever the mystery is, it's not something you move on from. Hmm. That's something you go, oh shit. You know, whoa. <laughs> And then you just stay there. That's yeah. you don't you don't say, oh, that that was God. Great. Right. Write it in my journal, put it in my drawer. Yeah. Now I can forget about Check. it. Check. Check. Did it. God realization done. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't lend itself to efficiency. <laughs> I had this bizarre experience and I've cited this a few times because I think in some ways um I seem to mostly interview religious scholars. <laughs> and you're you're interestingly on the practitioner side of that. Um, but I tend to interview religious scholars and ed reformists. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this comes up quite a bit, at least with the, with the religious scholars, I had the experience and the opportunity to sit down, uh, very organically with, uh, two gentlemen, both in their late seventies or early eighties. One was a Sufi monk mm. and the other was, uh, what I probably later learned would be a Kabbalistic Jew or a, mm -hmm. a mystical Jewish man. And the Jewish guy blew my mind and asked me a question. The If it were a test, I, I, to the degree that it was a test, I absolutely failed it. But he asked me because he knew that I was sort of interested in religions and comparative religions and mythologies. He sort of said, Kevin, if someone came to you and they really eagerly wanted to experience God, what would you tell them to do? And I won't even waste your time with my answer because it was that bad. <laughs> but I have loved asking people this question. Um, and you should know again that I, I failed miserably okay. <laughs> so, to the degree. It might be, it might be an intimidating question, but I essentially gave an educate, like a, an intellectual answer about comparative and, um, religions and sort of said well you need to ask that person what kind of god they want to think about <laughs> and he was like okay well what if they read all those books then then what um and at one point i got frustrated and i sort of answered back to him well, what would you recommend and his answer blew me away and it seems to be in line with your practice and he said he said i would tell them if i met them only one time to sit in a room for as long as they can and to try to rip themselves of all of their conscriptions and um identities and their attachments right <laughs> and and eventually whatever they find at the bottom of that that's about the closest thing <laughs> that mm -hmm. we can call god mm -hmm. that's great know. yeah it was a it was a really profound answer but are you interested when you teach people meditation in getting them to experience god because you're essentially am, teaching people to do what he recommended. Yes, I am. I am interested in. I'm interested in in getting people to experience the source of reality. Mm. And I think that's the language I would want to use. And so, if I were to answer the question that the the rabbi posed to you, you know, I would say. Just look meticulously 
at every aspect of your experience in the in the exact instant of the arising moment until the magnificence of being just overwhelms you hmm. you know that you, you know if you just if you get involved in stuff right in in your story about things your ideas about yourself your ideas about it. if you get involved in all the stories and all the ideas you just live in the world of ideas but as the rabbi said you know if you if you step out of all those stories and you just get very 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 quiet so that you can see the emerging instant of reality right there's only one now and this is it and if you can really just put all of your attention on this exact instant the eternal now that there is no other you know there is no second moment there's just this ever present now and you leave your attention on that eventually it will dawn on you that this is a miracle that there is just an unfolding explosion of being that never ends uh and that's what we call that's what the true now is uh and that's as far as i know that's as close to god as you can get and as a as, as a friend of mine who i who i interviewed a while back said to me once and on the third hand mm -hmm. you're really interested in these sort of um aberrant mystical practices that seem geared uh in some capacity at at getting you to focus on that yes right um what are some of those practices that have recently fascinated you or i'm sure you're always learning about them are there mm -hmm. any that have recently really excited you or interested you absolutely so the basic idea is if you were, if any one of us was at a point where we could just sit down and surrender, kind of what sure. the rabbi said, right, you wouldn't right. need any practice. You're done. <laughs> you, right. you just let go. And then so it's over, right? Hmm. But most of us need a lot of practices. So um, the main practice that I often teach is, I call it the art of conscious contentment. It's just the ability to sit and not make a problem out of anything that happens. Right? <laughs> so you can just relax. Yeah. It, the power of being able to truly relax is phenomenal. And conscious contentment. And once you can really sit and not make a problem out of anything and relax, mm -hmm. then the next kind of step on the journey is you want to forget yourself completely. Mm -hmm. You want to let go so much that you forget, you know, like if you're in meditation, you forget you're meditating, you forget you're sitting, you just blink out. And you asked what practices I'm, am I excited about now? I am very excited now about what can begin to happen once you blink out. Mm. You know, once you're, you know, once you let go of attention to the, to, to the ordinary world, once your attention is liberated from that, once you're no longer paying attention to that, where does your attention go then? That's the more interesting question. Mm. You know, what happens when you stop paying attention to the ordinary and, uh, how can you journey beyond the ordinary into the extraordinary? And, and it, the, you know, I think there are ways to do that. Various mystical traditions have written about it. Uh, it's a, it's a very tricky maneuver because you have to do it and not do it at the same time. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a very weird thing, but it's literally described in just about every mystical tradition in some way or another. And I have experienced that. I'm mm. fascinated by it. I would imagine experiencing it, it would fascinate me. Absolutely. And you right. feel like, well, then you're filling out your sense of self. Mm. And, and it's it seems to be that as you fill out, as you experience these other dimensions of being, your ability to surrender increases. Exactly how there's a relationship there, I don't really know, but that's that's what my experience tells me that it somehow you get you become more at home in a bigger universe, and being more at home in a bigger universe allows you to relax more deeply mm. uh, and let go more, which then creates the space to explore more, and then you feel even more at home. And then you're able to relax more, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What's at the bottom of that almost scares me. Yeah. Well, it's probably not a bad thing to be scared of, I yeah. suppose. But, <laughs> you know, the thing is, to the part of us that's very um, identified with and loyal to this separate sense of self that maneuvers through the ordinary world, letting go to that degree is terrifying mm. uh, to the part of us that is already uh, uh, expanded into all dimensions. It's already there anyway. There's mm. no fear. So a big part of the spiritual journey, which is what you were talking about a minute ago, is is our identity shifts from what's often talked about as the small self or the mm. separate self to the big self, which is the whatever that is the god self and and when your identity shifts to that side hmm. it's not the none of this is scary anymore it's all already happened from that point of view yeah this uh a jo very random joseph campbell lecture is coming to mind where he's talking about buddhism and and he's i think he's talking to a bunch of prep students and he's talking about this sort of brahmin idea and this, the Buddha consciousness being in all things. And he sort of says, when I look up at the ceiling, I see individual lights, but they're carrying light. And right. if one bulb breaks, I'm not like, oh, we really missed that light. <laughs> you know, He's like, you just put in another light. And he's like, when I look down at you, I don't see lights, I see heads. And in those heads is consciousness, right? And I think in the, in the same lecture, he, he talks about sort of exactly as you just said, sort of I going from this, transference of identity in the small self to this larger self you're not as attached to the vehicle you're more interested in the what that vehicle is carrying absolutely you know and it's uh i once wanted to make a kid's show um which i probably never will but anyway uh it was going to be called radio land hmm. and it was going to be about all these different radios and then one breaks and the music's not coming out and everybody's really upset but nobody realizes that it's all the same music huh. the music the music didn't go anywhere like that one radio is broken but the music is still playing in all the radios mm. and it's still emanating from the source which is the station you know from which it comes so one radio may break another one may work but the music continues uh, and you get more, you feel more like, oh yeah, the consciousness continues. 
yeah, I can almost picture the pages of that children's book. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how popular it would be, but it could be fun to write. Yeah. 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 My imagination sort of running away with me. That's a great story. Hmm. Um. Okay. I have a million questions. How are you on time? I'm good. I yeah, think we can I, go a bit I think I told you about 50. Are you good with about 15 more minutes? Yeah, let's do 15 more. Okay. Um. What was the first Greek mystery school that you became really interested in? And have you read that Brian Rescue? The Immortality Key? No, I have not read that. Sounds oh, like really? I should, though. Yeah. Um, Jeff Kripal, if, if you don't trust me, which you have every right not to, uh, <laughs> Jeff Kripal, I think we bonded on that book. The Immortality Key by Brian Murrescu is essentially an archaeobiological, um, yeah, archaeobiological pursuit of confirming the hypothesis that Eleusis would have been using some psychedelic mixture. Mm. Mm. And I don't think there was a smoking gun, but they did find that one, the Eleusinian, if I'm saying that correctly, mystery spread. And they have, I think they do have smoking guns of it spreading and sort of popping up, going underground and popping up in places it shouldn't belong, like Spain and all mm. these Greek little, these little cups. Um, and at the bottom of one of those cups, they found, uh, I believe, some, something like ergot or whatever the whatever the foundational molecule of LSD is. Mm. So, and then he, towards the end of the book, he starts talking about this, um, what sometimes might be referred to as this pegging continuity theory, which is that as Paul is sort of headed east and bumping into Greece, letter to Corinthians, et cetera, he's bumping into these mysteries and that that might've had an influence on early Christian traditions and early Christian mysteries. Oh, interesting. I'll have to check that out. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. And he, um, he was, he was a lawyer and just, this was his passion project for about 12 years. He was ooh. a Latin and Greek and Sanskrit major in college. And I think at some point he defended someone who wanted medical marijuana an NFL player or something starts doing research on different illegal substances being used for therapy, mm. sees these psilocybin trials coming out of Johns Hopkins and says, oh my God, this reminds me of Eleusis. And then for 12 years goes down this rabbit hole and then comes out with this book. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. That is fascinating. He's, he's on plenty of podcasts. So you see, And this is the, the immortality key. The immortality key. Good, I'm going to remember that. Um, yeah, I think it's called the secret. The history, the secret history of the religion with no name, I think is the subtitle. Okay, I will definitely check yeah. that out. Um, so, what? Uh, well, I Greek think mystery for me, cults were you interested in? Um, <clears throat> I'll drop. I was very cult, interested sorry. in Christian tradition okay. uh, in in my youth. I, I was interested in in the Gnostics mm. and the the those mystery schools and and the. Uh, you know, the secret teachings, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, you know, the whole idea that there were these groups of people studying things. So there was that. And one book that was very influential on me was was a book called Reality by Peter Kingsley. And mm. to be honest, I I can't remember if it was Plotinus or uh, Pythagoras that he was writing about. But what I read 
in that that I found fascinating was how they would incubate, <clears throat> which basically meant they would put you in a cave and seal it up. And you would stay there for three days. And the idea is that you would visit the underworld and then come back with visions and, and wisdom, right? And uh, I just, as I read Peter Kingsley's book, I, I, that was an image that just captivated me, you know, that because I thought my spiritual practices are variations of that, you know, sure. going into the underworld and coming back with wisdom, oh. with, uh, experiences to share um i was doing it in meditation i wasn't sealed into a cave but uh you know similar and so i was really really fascinated by all that and then some years after i read it i went and did a sensory deprivation float mm. and the people who owned it there were like three or four guys that owned this flotation tank and they were all into the book reality by peter kingsley because they saw huh. their float tanks as the modern day version of sealing yourself into a cave. Um, and, you know, I haven't done that many floats, but I've had very powerful experiences hmm. uh, in that kind of sensory deprivation environment. Yeah. Interesting. I've never done one, but I've heard they're way more common now than I would have thought. Yeah, they're they're all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. And so it's just intense meditation. Yeah, well, for me, I, I yeah, it's intense meditation. It's also well, I was saying, you know, relaxation is so important, mm. and and you're in this tank. The one I was in, the, the ones I've been in at least are like, you know, there's a lot of room for you to spread out, uh, so you don't have to, you don't hit any sides, mm. and it's very buoyant water, very very salty, so that you float very high, mm. and it, you know, just kind of like you couldn't be more perfectly comfortable. It's like it would be that or zero g. You know, you could probably get a similar or maybe even a better experience if you were in outer space. But short of that, you're literally just floating mm -hmm. on this water and it's pitch black dark. And yeah, I was kind of meditating and, you know, eventually you're just gone. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're like, you, your eye, you can't tell if your eyes are open or closed really. And and you know this is this is what gets powerful in meditation, uh, but it, you know this environment does it too, which is you lose reference points. Mm. You know, in meditation, this can happen if you get very very relaxed and you let go. You lose all reference points. This this is how you forget yourself. You mm. know, you kind of forget that you're sitting. You forget which way is up. You forget how long you've been sitting. It's just you don't. There's nothing locating you anymore in any particular place. And the feeling is it's like you're just spreading out mm -hmm. because all of that apparatus that's always pinning you down mm. isn't functioning anymore. I'm painfully aware that I keep using the, the sentence stem, how much of that is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm imagining closing my eyes and having this instinct of wanting to reach out. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of your body is sort of instinctively trying to expand to, to get a reference point. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And and also you can watch your mind trying to figure out. Mm. But at some point you just realize you can't, you you know, you get to this place where, at least I did, you can't really feel your body anymore. Right. You don't know if your arms are out or if they're in. Mm. And sometimes you like, you can't withstand the, uh, the unknowing. And so like, I remember like slapping my hand against the water so that I could get a sense of where it was.
Yeah. Totally not where I thought it was. <laughs> I was sure it was like my arm was up here. Yeah. And then I slapped the water and found that I was right next to my leg. And it's like, it's such a trip because yeah. you realize, oh, my sense, I always think my sense of my body is me feeling where my, uh, me feeling my body. But mm. in this tank, you realize, no, my sense of my body is the concocted experience of having a body that my mind is generating. And when my mind loses track of where my body is, it just creates a different experience of body that may or may not actually conform to the physical body. Hmm. See, this is the kind of stuff I get off on all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I I feel like uh, I know someone who swears by them, and I, I think I owe him a call now. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should. You should check it out, see what he's into. It's Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've done him a few times. I'm looking forward to doing them again. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it never became my main practice. Of course, COVID didn't help. Sure. You know, that, that kind of, you know, the flotation tanks became a definite mm. non-starter for, uh, I guess, a couple of years. Interesting. So how much, you, you have like a very playful sense about you. I am, and you don't seem like, I just imagine if I were to talk to somebody who would have your description online, <laughs> that you would be very regimented. I mean, how much of your practice is just sort of playful? Like I wanted to ask about fasting or different conditions, but I'm, and I'm sure you've explored them rigorously, but do you subscribe to, to those practices in, in a really regimented way? Or do you find yourself just more enthusiastically trying different things? Yeah, mostly I'm enthusiastically trying different things. Mm. Uh, I do meditate regularly. Sure. Uh, Partly because I love it. Yeah. It's like my great chance to relax at mm. least once a day. Um, <laughs> I did very, very disciplined practice for two decades. Mm. You know, incredibly disciplined practice. There's a whole other story we could have around, sure. around the practices I was engaged in in community. And I think discipline is, is really important. Not... Not... Uh, it's in, I think, and this isn't true for everyone, but I think, I think for many of us, it's certainly true for me. Learning how to be disciplined, right? And discipline is such a great word, you know. It's got, it's got a bad rep because we think of it as like punishing children, you know. But, <laughs> you know, the the true meaning of of discipline, and of course, discipline comes from the same root as disciple, mm. uh, but you know, discipline really had to do with um, what it took to make a horse rideable, mm. right? So an undisciplined horse was wild. It couldn't be ridden. Mm. And, and so if you think about your identity, your sense of self in the same way, you need to make it rideable. Mm. Uh, a sense of self is a wonderful thing to have. It's so, so, so useful. It's even, incre it's incredibly useful in the world in earning money and, and, and in spiritual practice, it's really important to have a sense of self. It's just not what you want to be controlling your life. Hmm. You know, so you want the sense of self to be something you can ride. And, and so a certain amount of discipline is important, you know, just so the sense of self learns its place. You know, it's not, it's not in control. Hmm. You're not living for it. It's living for you. You, hmm. you know, it's, it's your sense of self. 
and it doesn't realize that it thinks it's in control it thinks sure. you know, yeah. it's, it thinks you know yeah. you're the your conscious that consciousness is for me and my pleasure but that's not it actually i'm here to support that right i'm, I'm laughing thinking about myself trying to tell myself who's writing who <laughs> <laughs> exactly who's writing who here that's great so I'm yeah discipline is important but it's not it's not the end all and be all and i think we all have to listen to the natural rhythms of our own spiritual life and know when and where we need to be more disciplined and when and where we need to be more free mm. i'm aware of the time you also just made me painfully aware of this 20 year black box that i that if you're willing should be the basis of our next conversation absolutely because uh, that sounds fascinating but you also have 40 books and i love to read i'm reading um jeff kripal's uh the secret body right now secret body. oh fantastic yeah <laughs> yeah because he sort of introduced it as an outline of his work and i thought oh, that that would be fascinating because he too similarly poses this really difficult question of there's so much to ask you <laughs> you really just start inching in mm -hmm. um is there a book that you would point me to that you've written that based on our conversation you think i would be interested in i'm also fascinated in the not to steer your answer but just to maybe underline some things i i one of my first interviews was actually with elaine pagels a scholar of Gnosticism and, and she yeah. really got me hooked on this whole thing. Actually. I saw her last year, I think. Oh really? Uh, she was, gave a lecture at the library in Philadelphia near where I live. Um, oh, where are you in Philadelphia? I'm actually now outside of Philadelphia across the bridge in New Jersey, but I was in center city until uh, up until four months ago. Oh my gosh. I'm in South Philly right now. Oh, Oh, there you go. So we're going to have to hang out sometime. Yeah. Are you where in South? I, and I grew up in Haddonfield. So, oh, okay. So we're, we're across the bridge, just, just beyond Cherry Hill in New okay. Jersey. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, awesome. My wife and I, yeah, we moved out of the city about four months ago. Okay. Yeah. I, can you give me a recommendation for a book and then I'll, I'll cut the recording and I'll I'm gonna give you two, talk. please. Uh, uh, the path of spiritual breakthrough, okay. which is, I wrote about a year ago. Um, which will give you a lot of insight into my process and the experiences I've had that have influenced me. The other one is called The Soul's Journey to Wholeness, but it won't be published until about two months from now. It'll, it, it's mm -hmm. written, but it's uh, not quite published. But I feel like that one is opening up into the domain where my teaching is going currently. Cool. Awesome. I love, love the introduction. Fantastic. Jeff, where can people find you? Uh, the best place is to go to my website, jeffcarrera.com. Awesome. And I will include that in the in the bio. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. I'm going to cut the recording if you don't mind hanging out for a second. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs>